Hey and welcome to What We've Been Watching, I'm Laurie and he's Phil. This is the podcast where you can hear four randomly chosen movie reviews of films old and new, not at the cinema, great for recommendations and films in the evening. This is a mini special intro for this show because it was originally destined for our YouTube channel, but instead it's been moved to its new home on the What We've Been Watching podcast. So sorry if there are little random notes towards YouTube or leaving comments or that sort of stuff, try and ignore them uh, and enjoy the podcast. That's all I need to say, I think. So here's the show. Laurie, what films are you going to be reviewing this week? I'm going to do The Mermaid. Do you know what that is, Phil? Uh, I think you've talked about this before. It's like the number one Chinese movie or something? The record-breaking Chinese movie from 2015, I think. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Uh, and then also The Matrix Revolutions. Uh, <laughs> Slightly less extraordinary, okay. yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to be doing... Uh, Maybe not the highest brow sort of films. I'm going to be talking about Runaway Bride, the Julia Roberts, Richard Gere nice. rom-com. Absolute classic for some. And then... For me, 100%. <laughs> and then also I'm going to be talking about Twilight, the second movie, New Moon. That's right. I got in there before you to do the first one, which kind of was the best. We were kind of going to do a feature, I thought, but then we never... It just Well, we've, we've started it, I guess. This is the feature. This is the feature. Uh, so me first this week or you? Uh, let's say you first. Should I do The Mermaid? Yes. Zhen 我留我什么大风大浪没见过今天就凭你跟我斗这整个海湾都是我的这整个海洋都是我的你别告诉我比起爱上他了你说我在这个世界上见过的最美丽最干净的女孩你不是人你是天使假如你的生命只剩下最后一分钟，假如地球上连一滴干净的水、一口干净的空气都没有，你最想干嘛？This is about a mermaid who is part of a community of mermaids who've been boxed into a little cove in a bay around an island. And the reason this has happened is that a sort of daredevil roguish uh, young entrepreneur has bought this land everyone else thought was worthless but he's realized by clearing out the oceans uh, of all these fish and i can't quite remember but doing something to the land he can make it prime real estate and earn a, a whopper of money so all his business rivals are very very jealous what he doesn't realize is that he's basically destroying the habitat for these mermaids no one no one really realized exist so there's a really bizarre plan the mermaids come up with to send their most attractive by human standards, mermaid out, dressed in trousers, and so she sort of wobbles along, wearing shoes on her fins at the bottom of her feet. Oh my gosh. Pretends to be a human girl to get close to this entrepreneur and kill him so that uh, it'll stop the plans going ahead. This Makes film sense. sounds nuts. It is nuts. <laughs> it's worth saying that it's uh, it's by a legend of Chinese cinema called Stephen Chow, and he, he's done Kung Fu Hustle. He's sort yeah. of known in the Western world, and I think he's quite a celebrity... Uh, in China for doing comedy as well as drama altogether. And I just think this is such a fascinating movie for spotting what a genre film might be like in 
in another culture completely because it is funny it's utterly absurd there's a lot of slapstick humor weirdly involving a girl protagonist and that in particular made me realize how little that's done in western cinema so rarely is a girl character genuinely like falling over or having their head smacked by something in a kind of accident it's, it's supposed to be funny like an office chair or something will spin around and smack her in the face right, and she'll right, get right. knocked out and kind of act all dizzy that is never done by female characters in in western movies not in this way anyway and also in the context of it being a funny film where you're supposed to laugh at slightly slapstick things happening the level to which the slapstick goes is quite extreme. So there's one character who sort of rules the mermaids, who's an octopus, an octopus man. I don't know what you call them, mer octopus or something. And when it looks like the girl is failing to kill this businessman because she sort of starts to fall in love with him because he's always been an outsider as well and just needs love, blah, 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 blah. Right. Blah. The octopus guy turns up to try and finish him off himself. There's a plan. She lures him to a restaurant and the octopus guy will finish him off. And he's playing the chef with all these knives in his hands and he's going to, you know, kill the guy. But... They sort of play it like a, a what's the time Mr. Wolf thing, where because they're, the guy's watching, he doesn't give away. He's going to sort of kill him. Right. And actually all these other people turn up to watch because the chef is meant to be a master. So instead, <laughs> this octopus guy has to do some cooking. And there's one bit where they come in and they see his tentacles are there. And rather than expose himself as a mer octopus... He getting, off. Yeah, he starts chopping his own octopus limbs Ooh. off and frying them on like a hot plate and stuff to serve them up oh, and like man. you just think is that funny i don't really, i don't like really know when it's really 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 odd and even the, the 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 way the plot moves on is absurd but quite compelling for all that as well can i just stop you because the trailer you played seemed way dramatic yeah, and then yeah. you're telling me it's like this slapstick comedy and sort of a bit well, weird and sort of humorous and things. This is what I mean. It's just, it's bizarre. It is clearly meant to be funny because it's just absurd humor. But also it's got a very serious point, which is let's stop polluting and destroying uh, the sea life and, and all that. And it, I think it not being an expert at all, it would be fair to say that in Asian culture, there is generally a bit more of an ingrained respect for nature and the environment and not, you know, there's, there's even a sort of holistic spiritual element to that in the traditional and all that kind of stuff so it obviously hits home and you can see that not just <laughs> by the drama present in the music and the way the story unfolds in the massive box office taking like this you can't stress how popular this film has been in china like it's unbelievable i've heard some people throw stones at it and say well china manipulates their box office statistics oh, really? but i don't think that bears out the guy's a legend of cinema and it, it's produced like a smash hit movie um yeah, I mean, there's not too much more to say because it's so different and bizarre. It's worth a watch because it's unusual. Is Stephen Chow in it? I don't think so, no. Because um, he was in Kung Fu Hustle. Well, if he was, I, d I didn't notice him. No, that the lead uh, is Chow Deng as this businessman. Another thing that just is really interesting from a sort of cultural point of view is the CGI is, is really, really ropey in places. I think what's strange about it is that the, the finish on it is very poor, but I would say what they do with it is a bit more ambitious. So it's much more present in the film and depended upon than the way that Western cinema might do it. What, so they put CGI in the background was this is forefront? Yeah, they, they sort of don't care whether you think it's realistic looking or not. Do you know it's what I mean by that? It's just telling the story. Yeah, and it's a funny way of doing it because I can imagine people don't complain about the CGI because they're not so interested in how perfectly realised it is. They're more interested in the story and the scene itself. So how realistic it is doesn't matter. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. It's worth a watch because of its place in box office history in China. And it's just, yeah, it's nuts. Would you watch it again? But possibly. I think watching it twice, I, I might be able to gauge what on earth it's doing a bit better. 
but yeah, strange film, but worth what, it. What grade would you give it? Probably a B, I think. Really? Yeah, I mean, it is fun to watch. It's just some of it's quite uncomfortable. Like, there's a lot of violence in the film. Is there? Yeah, a lot. And there's a scene towards the end, which is bordering on harrowing, actually. It's just, you have to kind of see it to understand it. I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I hope that was interesting. Oh, I might watch it, and then I might kind of give my thoughts, my re- response, you my should. rebuttal to it. Please do. Here's with yours, man. Okay, Runaway Bride. Hooray! I, that's quite a challenging, you know, genre-clashing movie as well, isn't it, Phil? Yeah, yeah, it is. The bride is walking down the aisle. Maggie Carpenter is walking down the aisle. Seems very confident in her approach. She's at the first pew. The bride seems to be a bit hesitant. She's turning. She's turning in. Oh, she's running. Where's she going? Lock the door! She likes to dump grooms right at the altar. Plows down the aisle, knocking old ladies out of her way like the running of the bulls in Pamplona. I'm profoundly and irreversibly screwed up. I have been accused of using this column to direct bitter diatribes at the opposite sex. I could. This runaway bride story, I think we can sell it to GQ magazine. The real story. All the gory details. If she runs again, you got a cover story. Shazam, I think I'm in Mayberry. Excuse me, I'm looking for Maggie Carpenter. She's gonna follow me around everywhere I go? No. Never guess who came crawling into town. Hello, Maggie. Gotta be kidding me. You're going to do the same things with number four that you did to the previous three. And I'm not leaving until you do. Okay, so this is a Julia Roberts, Richard Gere rom-com. It stars Julia Roberts as uh, and Maggie, I think yeah. it is. Uh, that's right. Don't don't try to derail me, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this well, man. I'm, I'm on point You're today. You're better than me. Come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this film, it just gets it right. It's really fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It follows a really nice flow, actually, I think, to, to the kind of beats of the story. Um, and... Inevitably, there's sort of there's this sort of tension between Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. It's a rom com, and I'm not going to spoil it, but I wonder if you can guess where it goes. <laughs> but the thing which is really surprising is it it does go where you're expecting it to go without me spoiling it, so you can't say I'm spoiling it. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't feel like undeserved. It doesn't feel out of place. Well, it's funny that you say that because I think. The fact that it doesn't feel unearned or undeserved is actually a magic trick because it really should. The narrative of the story is absolute nonsense, but well, you, you just get carried along with it, don't you? Exactly. And you kind of, because of the, the way it's written and because of how it builds up her character and all the things swirling around her, it means that the where the film ends up you feel is a good thing rather than a really sad thing and uh, or, or whatever it is. It just It just kind of works. And there's some really good poppy music to kind of carry you along yeah that's true and the town itself becomes a bit of a character everyone in the town is a bit of a character and and has something to say and has a role to play in the story and adds a bit of humor and lightness and i think it's undeniable that these two actors rich gear and Julia roberts have great chemistry obviously they were in pretty woman together which kind of launched well both of them into a higher level of stardom but it just kind of there's there's that you like seeing these guys together on screen. Yeah, yeah. They can argue, they can bicker, and yet still come together and resolve. And you know what I mean? Oh, totally. And you know what? Richard Gere plays that kind of sarcastic, smug guy brilliantly. I wish he'd done that a bit more. Like he's so bitter in some of his dialogue. It really works well. It suits him. 
And you know what else I often think of, man? The soundtrack to this film is so well chosen. I think about the, the end credits. I think I've already sung it once on the podcast. You can't hurry love. No, you'll just have to wait. <laughs> I can't, that's such a classic song. It's ludicrous that I should think of Runaway Bride. But it's, it just kind of, they use the music well to keep it up and energetic and fun. And even the emotional music that goes at one point. Yeah. Rich Gear strolling around New York. Uh, I still that, that is a Runaway Bride soundtrack. You He's know? got an awesome New York apartment, hasn't he? I remember thinking that's probably the kind of place I'd end up living in <laughs> at some point in my life. Yeah, sadly no. Do you know? Uh, ages ago, we did a movie hate about how whenever you need to break up rom com rivals, rom com rivals. I'm so glad you're going to say this because I was going to jump in and say it. Go on, do it. Yeah. So this film has a rival, has somebody that's sort of challenging the sort of romance that the film is obviously pushing towards. But it avoids that trope massively. It and doesn't sorry, have I somebody... In. Just say what the trope is. So the trope, which we really hate, both of us really hate, is the, the, the fact that in order to kind of make uh, the love rival somebody that you feel okay losing out and losing their... Yeah, you don't mind a relationship being broken up because... Because they're horrible, they're absolutely detestable and uh, they seem to be cheating on them and horrible and mean and, and just nasty to them. Example like 27 Dresses, uh, her, Catherine Heigl's sister in that is awful... And even the parent trap with uh, Lindsay and Lindsay, <laughs> which you reviewed a little while ago, and Meredith in that, the Mer- Dennis Quaid's love interest is awful as well, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's despicable. So and you she's... want them to break up. So yeah, there's a kind of, in order for it to justify the sort of infidelity and sort of the, the worming in of some new love interest, uh, they, they make them, the existing lazy. relationship, horrible. Yeah. But this film doesn't do that. No, it doesn't right. do that at all. It makes it so that everyone comes off well. I don't think there's a villain in the piece, really. The worst you can say of them is they're a bit goofy or just... Actually, what's, it's really clever because it just makes you feel like, oh, they just weren't right for each other in, in the first place. It's really clever, isn't it? And so the film, there's no bad taste in the mouth. I can't... Even, if it, even though it's slocky and even though it's a bit cheap and, and it's just the most rom com rom-com you could ever find... By the end of the movie, you're just thinking, yeah, woo. Not woo, but like... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm completely just, with you. there's so much joy and fun to be had. And Do you I, know what? I, I think you're totally right, man. I've got to add, I, I want to say, the supporting cast, I think, play a much bigger role than you think they do because the film is very much about the leads. But Joan Cusack is, you know, an A-grade support act, if you can get her. Yeah, like, yeah. As Maggie's friend, she's brilliant. And that, one of my favourite scenes is her and Julia Roberts, actually. It's when Julia Roberts is hugging Joan Cusack's character's husband. And they have a little moment on the uh, sideline. Yeah. Joan Cusack acts that superbly. And it just little moments like that. And even um, Gina Roberts' fiance in the film, Bob, who's played by uh, well, a guy called Christopher Maloney, which is not a familiar name, but a very familiar face. Yeah, he's, uh, he's in Law and Order Special Unit. It's a him? very successful TV show. And he's brilliant. He is really brilliant as her fiance. The way he plays him is spot on. And without those two sort of grounding performances, the film, if they were caricatures, it wouldn't work so well. What would your grade be? I'm going to give it... Uh, I mean, I, can I really give it, like, an A-? minus? Why wouldn't you? Well, I feel like it's, it's... The thing is, it's a cheap movie. It's not sort of sensationally groundbreaking or anything like that. But it just is really well done. And I think it's a B plus, A- minus sort of movie. I just I'd do an A-, minus, I would, happily. I don't want people to hate me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back down to earth a little bit with Matrix Revolutions. This is the final instalment in the Matrix trilogy. The program Smith has grown beyond your control. You cannot stop him, but I can. And if you fail, I won't. Do you know what happened to Neo? He is trapped in a place between this world and the machine world. Bring me the eyes of the Oracle. 
Hoffman, I will give you back your savior. Mr. Anderson, who are you? Look past the flesh and see your enemy. It's impossible. Not impossible. Inevitable. <laughs> In less than 12 hours, the machines will breach the dock walls. If we have to give our lives, we give him hell before we do! Can Zion be saved? Tonight, the future of both worlds will be in your hands. Or in his. Mr. Anderson, welcome back. We missed you. It ends tonight. What happened with this film, I wonder? It's interesting, isn't it? The Matrix was groundbreaking, amazing, and I, it, you get the impression, based on the Wachowski brothers, sisters, sorry, um, later output, that uh, it's maybe was a bit of a mistake or quite lucky that it was as good as it was because they managed to create hysteria, sci-fi hysteria, in a way that hasn't been really seen since. And it we was talk- a phenomenon, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we were talking the other day about the Animatrix. How many films have you seen that spun off an entire like, animated uh, prequel slash sequel series? It's unbelievable, really. Yeah, and yeah. And people wore, and people still wear, the big giant trench coats and stuff and sunglasses. I did as a 15-year-old. All the leather and things. <laughs> Trying to be cool. Not leather. I never wore the leather. Just to be very clear about that. Um, whereas this, this final film, it really feels like it's lost its way. The Matrix Brilliant, Matrix Reloaded, I think still quite an enjoyable movie that began to sort of, it seemed to have a bit too much reverence for itself and its own mythology and story, so that everything started becoming a little bit pantomimish rather than grounded. And this film takes that to the next extreme. You said to me, Phil, and I agree with you, that this is probably the most obviously anime-inspired Matrix film because you've got so many abstract and surreal elements where there's over-the-top heroism or over-the-top symbolism and sort of extreme environments that, and you would typically see that in an anime film, like that they love the contrast in that. Like I just think of a film like Metropolis, which is absurdly enormous and absurdly urban. Do you know what I mean by that? And like Akira and things like yeah, that. Yeah, and it, it's so extreme in every way. And this film tried to do that, but it just revealed that it, it doesn't really work in a live action format. It makes me nervous for Ghost in the Shell personally. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the, the two kind of key elements, you've got the mechas, the sort of walking robot suits, which are very anime inspired. Yeah, exactly. And then also the second big element is you've got that fight between Agent Smith and Neo, the big confrontation in the rain in the city. Yeah. And They're doing it the is, Super Saiyan thing. It's the Dragon Ball Z flying around, energy blasts, and you punch them and they fly miles. It's kind of like a bit like Man of Steel's uh, final climax with General Zod. Um, and it's just sort of this larger-than-life reality, isn't it? Which yeah. is very much anime. Well, and I go even further than that. I think... Uh, even down to Neo himself, the whole thing, it's, it becomes almost spiritual and a lot to do with himself inside and his almost spiritual connection with these machines and stuff. And that's a classic trope in, in anime movies, like the lone hero with an internal struggle and everything else trying to deal with the existence and reality in the world. And yeah, this film has got it all over. It. And unfortunately, I don't think it's that good. In particular, I think it's forgotten where it's come from over these three films because you watched it for seeing normal people being able to do extraordinary things but in quite a limited way so that example you've given about the massive sky fight it just all the gloves are off aren't they and it becomes there's no limits anymore to the point where it becomes meaningless kind of weightless whereas neo jumping across a building a massive gap in a building has is quite grounded isn't it it's got limits and 
the joy is in seeing someone just exceed the bounds of reality and then the characters as well so someone like morpheus who was quite sort of mysterious you know this strong believer he was compelling to watch because he was so confident and he represented zion whereas in this film he doesn't represent zion anymore in fact he's a bit of a rogue even within zion and his kind of slightly prophetic uh, preacher-like dialogue becomes really hackneyed and a bit cliched and the sort of overconfidence when they really should be afraid gets annoying like there's a scene where infinity and morpheus go to see the merovingian and everyone pulls guns on everybody and there's a mexican standoff thing do you remember that scene yeah yeah and it's just a bit annoying you wish they just drop the pretense especially the merovingian and they just start talking to each other rather than laying on this metaphor and everything else and people have commented on that like a lot of the dialogue becomes impenetrable and just a bit silly um yeah so i think it forgot where it came from and as you've already pointed out the action becomes really tedious as well so that the final fight is Man of Steel, 10 years before Man of Steel was released. How, un- how much more unoriginal can Man of Steel become? Turns out rather a lot. Yeah. It's a terrible CGI fight where they punch each other, they fly miles and miles. You can't access that fight. Very hard to understand even the metaphorical conflict that's going on. It never made sense to me what Agent Smith was really doing. Mm. It never really made sense to me what Neo was doing. And the kind of way that's resolved still doesn't really make any sense. I didn't, I didn't get how the conflict was resolved. It just does. You sort of go along with it, but it's never really nailed as to how that happens. I think the only positive I would say is the scene inside Zion when all the Sentinels attack and there's an assault by the machines on this last bastion of humanity. It's actually really good, I think. I A think, lot of people I think disagree. I agree with you. I think it... What it is, it is good, but I think the main problem is the fact that it's not what people wanted to see. You know yes. what I mean? It's the it's it's in the wrong movie basically. But if it was in another movie, it could have been an absolute well, it, sensation. It, it, let me. I mean, I particularly want to pull out a couple of things. I think they do the small and the large very well. Again, Man of Steel is a good contrast. We laughed at the the total inability of Zack Snyder to reconcile small personal stories with massive city-wide destruction it becomes a joke that you care about one person trapped under rubble when yeah. there are five or six skyscrapers being knocked over <laughs> whereas in this one you do care about uh, link's girlfriend i can't remember her name in the film and another girl who are both trying to move around and shoot bazookas at the big drill do you remember that yeah yeah I do. That, that really matters and they make it they manage to make the threat feel real even though it's on a scale you can't imagine it feels real to you because they are tiny little people are still threatened by the things that are going on while you also have this swirling masses of sentinels around. That also reminded me of Star Trek Beyond. You know, Ooh. everyone praised the way that the bad guy ships operate in that film. Very inventive sort that's of thing. That's right. And it's almost, listeners, that's almost like a swarm. And so rather than it being a massive weapon, it's the sheer numbers and the willing to sacrifice themselves. So big swarm of ships just fly into the Enterprise and break things down because of the, the numbers. That was already done in this film. I didn't realise it, but they'd already done it. That's how inventive it was with its visuals. And it's storyboarding as well. And even you've got the little mouse guy, not mouse, and the little slightly nerdy guy who treats... I know which one you mean. I don't know his name, the character name. All he's doing is reloading the gun from the the commander guy in that mecha suit. And even those scenes are handled well. It's it's ludicrous that anyone will walk out into that storm. And yet somehow, the way that they film it and storyboard it manages to make you, you feel it. So, yeah, I mean, I won't go on and on. I think overall the film is a failure because it just tried to go a little bit too far beyond what The Matrix set out. But that doesn't mean it's not actually the failure that um, that people think it is. I think it, what it suffers from is the idea that it's the final film and this, it needs to go to a, a billion percent sort of thing. And rather than telling a story which is just the conclusion, they want to make it the the end film of all end films. Yeah. And it seems to forget too epic. It forgets what where it came from, like you were saying. And you compare the final fight between Agent Smith and Neo 
in Matrix Revolutions to the one in the Matrix in the yeah, underground right. uh, subway station. That I I watched the subway station fight again and again happily. Brilliant. It's fantastically choreographed. But then, there's none of that in this. No, new and one. you make a very good point because that isn't even the final fight. The final fight is in the corridor when the bullets will stop in midair. That's the metaphorical thing that I'm talking about. That's the metaphor done right because the message is there without you needing to show it again and again. Some kind of massive CGI. Display. And they've already had their big action blowout. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, overall a bit of a mishmash. I think I'd give it a B minus because I really don't think it's that bad. It holds up fairly well as a trilogy if you can get past the pompous dialogue. In particular, final note, some of the sci-fi realization of the world is really brilliant. I realized again how successful the music, the lighting, the design of the ships and the performances from within inside the ship's cabin. So not in the matrix but when they're flying around. It's really good actually and I really believed that post-apocalyptic landscape much more for example than the post-apocalypse of the Hunger Games or the Divergent series. This one's really, really, really good. Mm. It does make you think, though, what could have it been if we'd if they'd followed our little rewrite? Oh, the rewrite when we did. did a rewrite for Matrix Reloaded. Well, we won't do that here. Let, let's put that also up on YouTube, and people can people can hear what we would have done had we been at the helm. Yes, yeah, so which of course out. we never would have been because we would <laughs> never have been creative enough to come up with the original. How old film. were you when the Matrix came out? What was that? Nineteen ninety nine or something. Yeah, something like that. Oh, I was way too young, Phil, to be writing such things. <laughs> That's me. Have you got your last one? My last one is Twilight. Yeah, New, New Moon. Moon. Number yeah. two. Woo woo. The Volturi are the closest thing my world has to royalty. They enforce the law. Vampires have laws. You're a human who knows entirely too much about us. They could kill us all. You just don't belong in my world, Bella. I belong with you. This is the last time you'll ever see me. Please just promise me you won't do anything reckless. It's like a huge hole has been punched through my chest. I know what he did to you, but Bella, I would never, ever do that. There's only one way I know to see him. So, you're an adrenaline junkie now? What the hell were you thinking? This may hurt just a little. No, please, please! This is, this is the film which followed the phenomenon. The first film was actually quite a, a low-key film. The Twilight first film, it hadn't really got that sort of mania uh, that, that has now become synonymous with this franchise. But this film is hitting it when it was insane. People had uh, consumed all the books and here's this film. You can see just from the looks of the, the films compared to the, the first film the, the budget has gone way, way up. Way, way up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so this film follows Bella, played by Kristen Stewart, and uh, Edward Cullen, played by Robert Pattinson, uh, the vampire and human love romance. You've forgotten Mr. Wolf. And Mr. Wolf, Mr. Taylor Lautner himself. Uh, this film, I remember reading the book. I have read the book, sorry. Mm. So have I. Um, yeah, come on, don't be shamed. But this film, I think kind of is possibly the most boring of all the stories in the series. Oh, I think the third is worse, actually. But Do you think so? You know, I think, we'll I think come the, to that another day. Maybe the film is worse, but the, the story itself is, is a bit better. This film is really weird. It's basically like a depression uh, of a film. Is this the one where in the book there are about five pages in a row which just have empty diary entries? Yeah, it says like... June. 
July, July oh, August. That's the most. And it's oh, it's like her deary, deary six months me. later, but they they do it physically <laughs> with the book. Yeah, How yeah. did that get through a publisher? <laughs> so this film, um, it follows on from the events of Twilight, and uh, Edward and Bella are in a relationship, um, but then incidences keep on happening, happening, and Edward, being the ever so uh, white knight that he is, uh, is has decided that the only way he can protect Bella fully is if he leaves her alone. And so the Cullen family vanish. Dun, dun, dun. And Bella is left distraught. The love of her life, uh, the love that she is never going to be able to overcome has vanished forever from her life. All traces of him have been removed from her life and she is left distraught. Where, what is she without her man, Laurie? That's the question. I know. I mean, let's not get too bogged down in some of the sort of social implications of this story because there's an awful lot to criticise about Twilight. We're just going to do the movie side of it, right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just giving the plot so people know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bella is left to pick up the pieces and helping her pick up the pieces is Jacob, played by Taylor Lautner, who uh, is kind of like the anti-Edward. You know, he's very up and happy and, and is always sort of nice and complimentary to Bella and... And very warm, whereas Edward's a bit more stone-faced. Do you think when they cast him, they uh, put him in a room and said, can you show me the face of someone who is just heartbroken and a bit of a loser? And that that was why they cast him. Because I think the amount of time he spends looking really annoyed and sad that Bella is not falling in love with him, that's just it. That's his whole performance. (laughs) Just a perennial loser. Yeah, it is is a bit sad. But I think Taylor Lautner does do a pretty good job of being dramatic in this film, I think. He, having sort of tried to help Bella kind of recover from the absence of Edward, uh, then starts having his own issues with his own family and community and he seems to be going through a bit of a weird turn. All of his friends seem to be kind of joining this gang. And he's like, what's going on? Why? They keep on looking at me with this expectation. Yeah. Little did he know that he's oh, a werewolf. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Who saw that coming? There's a whole other fancy element to this film. This is the were- introdu- introduction of the wolves. And uh, these are giant CGI monstrosities. And we get to see Taylor Lautner take his shirt off a lot. Because, of course, werewolves can't have clothes. Only, no, although they do have only it, pants, <laughs> as everyone has said, indestructible werewolf pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to have pants available so you don't have to blur out anything. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine what awful, disturbing film that would have been? <laughs> just him posing, and then there's just this horrible blur. <laughs> that would be awful. Or they'd have to do really strategic shots all the time, <laughs> like Austin Powers style. <laughs> yeah. That film would have been better. <laughs> that would have been funny. Twilight the comedy. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think this film is isn't good it isn't good and it's i think it's partly isn't good because the story isn't particularly good it's not that fun watching somebody being absolutely miserable no i agree entirety like for a long run time and sort of it's really weird basically bella starts realizing that she puts herself in really dangerous situations she gets visions of edward and so she comes up with these stupid plans to try and see him again there's very little kind of action though it's kind of these random episodes building to nothing you don't really know what the end game is because there isn't really an end game there's not really a, a drive towards a final plot. no but then this third act kind of materializes out of nowhere which is very unexpected but having said that there is kind of a fun sort of vibe i think still well it's the mystery of twilight we talked about this before the twilight factor that i just don't know where to put my finger on it i, I can't figure out what it is the sort of rainy woodiness of her town of forks is quite cosy and quite fairy tale like like the darkness of it is not annoying darkness because it's more to do with the scenery and the landscape and it just feels very kind of vivid and as if there might be mythological creatures just popping out of the forest at you and even the sort of moroseness the emo nature of edward and bella because they're both as bad as each other 
even that sort of carries you along. It's just nonsense. They're too, they're so stupid, <laughs> both of them. No offense <laughs> if you like those characters, but they're such idiots. But at least they're equally matched by their idiocy. Yeah. The one thing which I would say redeems it is it has got quite a nice look to the film. You, the budget has been spent spent quite well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think. The music, I know you're going to roll your eyes at this, Laurie, because it's a bit of an indie soundtrack thing. Well, no, it's I, perfectly pitched for the kind of film that it is. Yeah, yeah. And, it is, and, it, and it doesn't kind of go for obvious selections. What's interesting is it picked out random sort of indie bands that became obvious selections because of yeah. films like this. You know what I mean? I'm sure those guys are raking in the money because, oh, of, because of these films. I remember seeing an interview with Bombay Bicycle Club who feature in one of the Twilight films. I don't in know this it was, one, I think is it, it really? is, yeah. And they, they were disappointed. They thought the film was rubbish. <laughs> and they were annoyed that their song was basically at the end credits. But I think they basically said, well, we took the check, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think, I mean, I, I kind of discovered Bombay Bicycle Club. Through Twilight. From this film, Great yeah. band. So there you go. Thank you, Bombay. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Twilight. <laughs> I think ultimately, though, the first film has more magic to it. And I think this film, I, like you say, it's hard to determine what it is. But the first film has that sort of... Well, it had the freshness. It's like the scene in Spider-Man, the first ever Spider-Man movie, where he discovers his powers. That's, I think that's everyone's kind of favourite scene in that film, because it's suddenly, oh, look, he's accidentally shot Webb out of his hand, you know. And, oh, whoa, he just beat that guy up really easily. Everyone loves that moment. And this film has that. Whereas from this point on, it's kind of... You're in that world already. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think as well, you can start telling that Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, they've had enough of the film, basically. They've had enough of the crazy, crazy fandom from the first film. Well, interestingly, James Luxford, who we had on our podcast a little while ago, who's film critic for the Radio Times and other fantastic publications, very kind of him to jump onto our little show. He met Robert Pattinson and interviewed him. And I think he described Robert Pattinson as like a guy in his early 20s who suddenly finds himself at the centre of unbelievable media attention. And you get the impression that these guys, I don't think he'd read the book necessarily or really understood the scale uh, that this, uh, this series had in fandom. And it must just be bewildering to them. I think you can, t- like you say, after the first film... I bet they just couldn't. They just found themselves lost. Like, what on earth am I, am yeah, I signed like, up for? It's literally like you just one day you become the Beatles. Like, they young, they're really young people, aren't they? That's the thing. It's like Beatles hysterics levels. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? even more. And actually. so I think they kind of already they're a bit like afraid of it all, and they're kind of not really. They, I think they start to phone it in because they don't really. Well, I'm necessarily... slightly disdain the material. Yeah. They just watch Robert Pattinson's interviews. They <laughs> they make me laugh so much. He's brilliant. On a just a quick one. On a scale of one to ten, man, how surprised were you? see tony blair uh slash um <laughs> <laughs> nick uh david frost you're talking about uh michael sheen yeah who's, in this uh, film he plays one of the main antagonists of the voltori unbelievable ancient vampire culture yeah he was he was very weird he is hamming it up with great glee but you know he's actually quite good <laughs> like, yeah. it actually really works he kind of gives a bit of a counterbalance to kind of all the seriousness of the the main leads and everything like that he's he's good view- he's good and he's kind of good viewing even in the next and the final film as well he somehow gives it a level of legitimacy that i did not see coming and it's a very odd way of giving it legitimacy it's yeah. like the opposite direction but somehow it kind of rounds it out yeah yeah not yeah exactly you know when you're tired at the end of the day actually sometimes you do want a bit of a cozy bit of fantasy nonsense and, and twilight is that it hits that button for sure yeah i'm gonna give it a b yeah okay i'd probably go more b minus because it is it is junk isn't it but it's just very acceptable junk very very consumable junk it's junk food 
Nice. <laughs> well, there we go. Is that the end of what we've been watching this week? Have you done your second one? I don't know. The Matrix Revolutions, yeah. Oh, yeah, you did. It's been going on for a while, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, listeners slash viewers, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that. Let us know what your thoughts are. Again, superbellybros at gmail.com or at superbellybros on Twitter or the comment section underneath this video. Like, subscribe. Yeah, you know all the stuff. All that jazz. And uh, keep letting us know what you think of the YouTube stuff. We're putting in some of our old podcast favourite segments. And yeah, we hope you enjoy them. Yeah, and if you uh, want some more Bailey Bros goodness, check out the podcast. You can find it on iTunes. It's and where all the... all the magic began, isn't it? Phil? Yeah, all, all the usual places you'd expect to find a podcast. We're sure you'll be able to find it there. And you can check out the website, superbaileybros.com. Exactly so. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you.